1974, a motion picture shocked the world. It has become one of the most acclaimed and successful films in history. The Exorcist is a classic in its own time. And now, Warner Brothers takes you a step beyond. Exorcist 2. And I am Troy Harkin, and welcome back to our Halloween two-parter, where we are going to be talking The Exorcist. But first, I wanted to ask David and our very special guest, Valentino Asenza, a little bit about some Halloween fangs. Um, (laughs) Guys, I'm traumatized by the fact that I had a really awful Halloween costume when I was a kid. Um, I had some good ones, but I was wondering what some of your worst costumes were. This this would be mine. And and I don't know if my mom did this out of spite or if she thought she was being resourceful and, and creative, but my worst Halloween costume was the Dixie Cup Man. And what the Dixie Cup Man was, was my mom had a, had a white sheet, right? That basically I wore the sheet. And she sewed on a bunch of Dixie cups. And, and that was it. She, she said, there you go. You're the Dixie cup man. <laughs> and I've, I saw the picture a couple of years ago. And it's like, oh, my God, that actually happened. I went out like that. And thank God it didn't rain. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. The Dixie cup man. I could see a movie being made about something like that. <laughs> and just imagine really if your mother yelled at you and said, hey, come over. It would be the Dixie Cup man runneth over. But no, sorry. <laughs> nice. Nice. So you guys have any sort of hellish or god-awful Halloween costumes or I, You know what? I don't tend to dress. Like, I mean, I, I guess I did dress up like when I went out trick-or-treating and um, you know, I, I don't think any of my costumes were all that great. I do remember though, when I was little, they kind of sold these like one package costumes of like, you know, certain characters. So it would be like, you would kind of wear this sheet over you for like the type of, like for Darth Vader, I was Darth Vader one year and it was this sheet that you'd wear over you like a plastic sheet. And Uh it would have like all the stuff that Darth Vader would have on his front. And then you'd wear this, like just this plastic mask over you and it just had it had like a little hole for you like i guess to breathe through for your mouth right and then the eyes were just so small yeah like they were just so unbelievably small it was it was like no wonder they wanted a parent to accompany you while trick-or-treating because yeah you could walk out into the street with how little you could see um in something like that so i just remember these little sort of like 
you know, packaged costumes that I could barely see out of. Um, that, as far as the worst, I remember I was Casper the Friendly Ghost one year, <laughs> and I was Darth Vader the second year. And they, 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 it was it was quite the journey to not be able to see out of the masks, quite honestly. Wow, and God knows what chemicals were in the masks <laughs> at the time, right? Like, and you're exactly. just inhaling that stuff. Yeah. Dave, did you have a bad one? Yeah, and it's sort of similar because everyone, when they were a kid at one point, was Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> right. So basically, this was just like a white sheet that was not bought. It was just it was a sheet that was bought for a bed. It wasn't some costume. And right. My mother cut some holes in it for eyes. And basically, you just sat under this thing, and that was it. So it was maybe <laughs> the lamest costume. I, I loved it, though. Yeah, How right on. How about how about good ones? What were your your best ones or favorite ones? Well, I've got one from just a couple of years ago when I was invited to do a Halloween poetry reading uh, at an event, and maybe if I had time, I'll add in all the details and what event it was and so on because it's all muddled in my brain right now. But I did buy something from a local value mart that was really cool. I bought this amazing mask that was looks like sort of like a child kind of thing. And I combined that with a couple other things that were um, from different kits, the Halloween kits. So one of them right. was this sort of this white kind of uh, a sheet kind of thing. And another one was this, belt like thing that had various tools that looked like that had blood on them that were like someone who was working in some woodshed ready to you know carving up people and combining all of these together was quite the effect so that was probably my best nice um i'll I'll give you one of mine in a second but but i do want to sort of give a shout out to uh one of my best friends ted healy who was a sculptor uh, Ted's retired now, but my kids were very lucky because uh, Ted could make anything out of anything. And he actually, for quite a while there, was working doing uh, mascot sculptures for teams and businesses and whatnot. And no word of a lie, Ted could sculpt a full character in about 30 minutes. So for a number of Halloweens, when my kids were growing up, they would uh, Ted would come up here. Sometimes beforehand, but sometimes on Halloween Eve, like around four o'clock, and he would sculpt them like Pokemon costumes that looked like the real thing in a matter of minutes. And I would be watching him work with foam rubber and an X-Acto knife. And it's like, what the hell am I looking at? There's no way this is going to be anything in any time soon. And he would do it. Um, so thank you, Tedder. Ted, Ted listens to the show. He's a regular listener. So thanks, Ted, for all of that. Um, anyway, my favorite one, I don't know if it was the best, probably was, was around grade seven. And I was a huge Planet of the Apes fan. And I found this mask, a, like a, an ape mask that looked really good for a rubber mask. Um, and so I decided I would be one of the apes from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes because if I was one from one of the earlier films, I would need like more detail in the costume. But basically, they just wore like these uh, mechanic jump jumpsuits, right? In in Conquest, um, so that's what I did. Actually, it was more of a um, uh, what were those Adidas warm up suits? I sort of wore that like an all blue one. Uh, with the head, with the ape head, and I had a a policeman's billy that one of my relatives had kicking around, 
And I was good to go. I was a conquest of the planet of the apes ape. Right on. Cool. How about you, Val? Uh, the, best co- the best Halloween costume I ever had coincided with my first paid acting gig. I was, um, I was, uh, I, I went to theater school in Ottawa. I went to Algonquin College uh, in Ottawa for theater. And um, there was an audition for this, this paying gig. And I, I went out for it and it was pretty awesome. So it was this play that we were doing around Halloween called uh, Custodians of the Stanley Cup. And I played um, Sheriff Richard Sweetland, who was one of the original two custodians of of the Stanley Cup. And, um, and it was great because I guess one of the reasons why it was such a great costume was number one was Malabar was costuming us. Oh, wow. And yeah. And, and the, the Beachwood Cemetery paid for like stuff for paid for that as well as any kind of makeup. Um, and, and, and that was wicked. So what we had to do is we had to do this play and it was quite astounding because there were original members of the Ottawa silver seven, no way there yeah no i'm serious there were the there were original members of the ottawa silver seven that were watching there were audience members in the show and then what we would do is we would go to our respective gravestones because sheriff richard sweetland was buried in the beachwood cemetery and in groups people would come to the gravestone with me standing there as sheriff richard sweetland and i'd have to talk in character um, wow yeah that was like by far the best halloween costume best halloween experience i've ever had like it That's was cool yeah it was my first paid gig and it was it was awesome i loved it it was now, really great was that the team that had the one-eyed uh player like frank mcgee or something like that who got like 14 goals in one stanley cup game howdy hockey fans it's your old poke check professor peter puck a Dawson City team challenged the Ottawa Silver 7 for the Stanley Cup. It took 23 days to get to Ottawa, where they were defeated by the great Silver 7, 9-2 and 23-2. It was a memorable series. In the second game, Ottawa's fantastic one-eyed Frank McGee went on a scoring rampage. He zinged in 14 goals with eight of them consecutive scores in 8 minutes and 20 seconds, an all-time record. Until I started doing this play, I didn't know that there was a team. I, I thought, like, you know, I, I, I didn't know that there was a team called the Ottawa Silver 7. I didn't know that there was, that the Stanley Cup was awarded to teams outside of the NHL. Like, I had no idea right. about any of this. And um, it was just astounding. Like, we were meeting, like, yeah, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, they were saying these people won, you know, they were one of the first winners of the Stanley Cup. And I'm like, what? Yeah, we, what? Really? Like, they're going to be here? Like, it was just, it was so bizarre. Like, it was just so unbelievably bizarre. But it was so cool. It was, it was like, it's one of my favorite, you know, uh, uh, memories for sure. It was just so wonderful. Yeah, it's kind of cool looking back to Halloween. And that's when this episode should be airing. It is October 30th of 2021. Uh, this episode uh, is a second of two parts. This is looking at The Exorcist. Uh, we're recording this episode on Saturday, October 2nd. For broadcast on Sunday, October 30th. Our special guest is Valentino Ascenza. And just to remind those who have seen the first episode, or maybe those who haven't, he is a poet, broadcaster, sports fan, and an expert on the exorcist. Troy, Troy has already given his spoiler alert. We're recording this via Zoom. 
And welcome back, Valentino, as we've already said. Welcome back, sir. Oh, thank you so much again. Like, uh, it's, it's been so great talking to you guys and really happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you both. Glad to have you. Yeah. And one of the things uh, that we're looking, because we're going to get in a bit more detail on The Exorcist, its books, its sequels, is why do you, why do you uh, Valentino and, and Troy, why do, why do you guys think that The Exorcist is still relevant and still speaks to the current generation? Uh, do, so uh, would I take this one or? Sure. Or yeah, yeah, you can jump in. Um, um, so, I mean, from, geez, you know, I, I, I guess, uh, I mean, David, you were mentioning before about, uh, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but just there's a lot of iconographic moments. Of, we, we've seen them pop up in parodies, right? Like uh, the turning of the heads. Um, it, the, the, the turning of the heads like popped up so many times. Like that was something that, it's bad enough to see a girl possessed by a devil, but then here she is turning her head 360. And we've seen that like in Simpsons episodes, like, uh, you know, when, when Maggie, when there, when there was an episode in the Simpsons, when the Flanders were taking care of the Simpson kids and there's a scene where Maggie's first words were Oakley Doakley and you, you see her head turn around, but then there's also the pea soup. The pea soup. There's so many like iconographic things, like the pea soup, the vomiting of the pea soup. I, I think they did a parody movie too in uh, in the fourth uh, uh, scary movie, uh, where James Woods would play like the elder, um, the elder uh, priest, uh, and, and and so the the possessed girl would would vomit pea soup on him, and James Woods would vomit pea soup back. Um, I just, I think that like it was, I think one of the biggest things though was that it was sort of like a rebel, a rebel horror movie. A lot of people thought until then, you don't touch stuff like, like, you know, religion, you don't touch Catholicism. No one's going to go there. No one's going to, you know, no one's really going to go there. And then here we are and this comes out and it, it, it stays true, I guess, to, you know, uh, uh, in terms of church uh, d- uh, doctrine or scripture, and and then it, it it incorporates it into this thing here. So, you know, I can imagine, and I know that there were a lot of family members in in Brooklyn uh, of mine that when they were teenagers, man, they'd get in trouble for going to see a movie like that, right? Like going going to that movie was a rebel thing to to go to. So, um, I, I think I, I think for all those reasons, that's why it's still kind of uh, last the the test of time and i think the thing that people forget is you know despite the very obvious sensational elements there is uh, a level of honesty throughout the film mm. you know both both uh in terms of verisimilitude but also emotional honesty uh through the film and you know you mentioned acting a little bit earlier um you know one of the the key things to a uh, I think a great performance is having a character that uh, has some complexity to it. Most horror does not have that. Most uh, horror consists of, in terms of film, um, they basically, you know, are, are based around tropes. You have this character that's this type and whatnot. And I mean, that is also a part of folklore, but in the exorcist, Blatty doesn't go there. And I think that's why Blatty also, you know, is reluctant to want to uh, call it a horror film. Um, so 
all of the characters in this film, nobody is just like sort of a placeholder for uh, a certain idea. Everybody, every character that is in this film is broken or vulnerable in some manner. So we have Chris, the mother who uh, she is divorced. She wants things to go well for her daughter. Um, she wants to f- fulfill that parenting role for her, but she recognizes that to do that, she has to be a working mom. Um, and that's going to inevitably take her away from her daughter. Um, and in the book, we get this conflict that is really something where she is offered the op- she's offered the opportunity to direct. Now you think of that today, like we still don't get women you know, who are able to, not able, but are, aren't offered positions. And it's like, only now does that happen? You know, five years ago, it wasn't happening. You had Mm. like two or three women directors. But so in, in 1971, Blatty is creating this actress who wants to direct and is given the opportunity, but has to turn it down because of her daughter's condition, which is heartbreaking. Uh, we get Reagan. We know that she is dealing with issues from the family being broken. We have uh, Damien Karras, who a priest suffering through a crisis of faith and, and the guilt of his mother at the same time. Um, we have Father Marin, who is vulnerable due to his failing health, and he has to do battle with this demon, but he's still willing to do it. Um, we have Kinderman, who is a detective, somebody who's looking for answers, and he's faced with a situation where he can never really get answers. Uh, we have the alcoholic director, Burke. We have Willie and Carl. And in the book, Willie and Carl, the, the housekeepers, have a daughter who was a drug addict. And that's why uh, Carl is leaving the house at different points, um, is to try and deal with her. Um, so, and Sharon, Sharon, hey, Sharon is who's Chris's assistant. She's working in a toxic environment. She has a demon in mm-hmm. her workplace. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't want that. Yeah, imagine that position description and that interview. Yeah, yeah. You have to take notes. You have to uh, type up stuff, and you have to live in a house that, or work in a house that has a demon. So, yeah. You know, I actually did once work with somebody who seemed to think he was uh, an extra from The Exorcist. He was a goth guy, and (laughs) and he would say he would all, and he had these nails that were like three inches longer than his fingers, and I would go into the. into the supply room and he would always say something creepy like i wish i could be at the i wish i could be at the crucifixion just to laugh you know he would say things like oh my god i know and i was like oh that's good you know how about them leafs keep watching hockey night in canada kids see ya yeah I, I yeah I mean but like there I mean you know it, it's an interesting thing though that I I, I find that there's like these kind of sort of hot spots for me where I just won't tread because I kind of get energy from them um, like when I used to do the show at Hard House when I used to do Howl at Hard House um, uh, there was a stairwell that we'd have to go up you could take the elevator up which is what I always did but when you couldn't take the elevator up you had to go through the stairwell. And I got to tell you, every time, I didn't like going through the stairwell at all. During the Christmas holidays, they said that that was the only way you can access the studio was the stairwell. And I said, man, there is something about that stairwell that I just don't like. And and people laughed at me. People laughed at me. You want to know something weird? Last year, last year, while people were doing their shows, there was 
a bunch of hornets that came into the studio oh. while people were doing their shows. And do you want to know where the where the nest was? It Stop. was in that stairwell. It was in that stairwell. You couldn't access the studios on the third floor for for the longest time before they they killed the nest. But that hornet's nest was in that stairwell. That's where the that's where all the hornets were coming from. Well, I remember you telling me about the vibes that you picked up from that area of Hart House, and it stuck in my mind. And in fact, when we were talking about The Exorcist, that's why you became one of the candidates for the for the show. It's like Val is Catholic. And he's also like aware of like this sort of feeling. And I have to tell you, when my wife and I moved into our first uh, apartment in North York, we got the weirdest vibes from this one area of the apartment. And I thought it was me, right? Because, you know, yeah. I'm the sensitive writer. I'm the guy who was fucked up by watching The Exorcist or, you know, being exposed to the whole thing. I thought it was me. But my wife, who is not that way at all, she mentioned to me, it's like, do you get a weird vibe in this place? And I said, yeah, I do. So we actually had, uh, there was a, a parish right across the road from us on Avenue Road, and we actually got a blessing done. And, okay. we, and, and I don't know if it was purely psychological, but we felt much better. Yeah. After the blessing. Like, yeah. like there was nothing afterwards. Again, might just be us, but you know what? We felt better about it. No, no, I, I completely get it. I do. I get it completely. I get it completely you know i mean i just get an energy about certain things and i was right about that stairwell i think i still am i'm not going back i'm not going through that stairwell anymore so i think uh, <laughs> david we were going to touch on the sort of the vibes that we got from the the famous uh, iconography of uh, when father Marin arrives at the house on prospect street in the fog right yeah, there's that movie that I think they also used possibly on the poster or on the DVD or, or what have you, or VHS. Uh, there's this this image of Father Marin arriving. He gets out of the, the uh, a car. He's got his bag. It's foggy out. And you have this just wonderful image of him just outside the house waiting to come in. That is, for me, one of the great iconic moments in movie history probably in the top five or ten moments in movie history it's just such a brilliant moment i don't know if you guys agree with that or not oh yeah For sure and For the sure. poster i mean the poster with that image it just drew you in because it's like well what's what's happening here and what is going to happen it was it was clear that there was a sense that something was going to happen um and for those who don't know um according to friedkin that shot uh he found inspiration from the 1953 Rene Magritte painting, The Empire of Light. So if anybody wants to check that out, you'll see it. You'll see the uh, a, a street light in, in front of a, a building. And, um, and yeah, they do match up. Now, I don't know if either of you have seen the recent Conjuring film uh, with the god-awful uh, subtitles, um, the devil made me do it, which I can't believe they went there. I can't believe they, they seriously <laughs> wanted to do an exorcism film and, and subtitle it. The devil made me do it. But have either of you seen it? No, I mean, I, I, I you know what I, I was, I, 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 I started watching those films conjuring and Annabelle and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I started, I, I did start watching them and I'm thinking, okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, but the, the that director is—is is it James Wan that directed those those movies? Uh yeah, yeah. He's really, really still into the whole jump scare thing. Like even with the yeah. nun, and like, and it's like okay. 
And I stopped watching them after directors started emerging, uh, like, for instance, Ari Aster. Sorry, there we go. Ari, Ari right. Aster. Yeah, like that guy gets horror. He gets it. Yes. That guy gets it. And, like, I mean, um, so, like, once those movies started coming out, um, there's a new one, actually. I think there's a trailer. A24 has got a new one out called Lamb. That looks good and creepy too. Um, but once once those types of movies started coming out, I I kind of like uh, I stopped with uh, with the Conjuring movies. Uh, so I, I haven't seen the Devil Made Me Do It one. Yeah. Well, I will point you both um, towards the new Mike Flanagan uh, series that's on Netflix, which is Midnight Mass as well. I find Flanagan also is uh, uh, one of the the great new directors. Anyway, the reason I brought up the Conjuring. Um, the devil made me do it is they, I guess, pay homage to the exorcist and to that iconic scene of father Marin's arrival where an exorcist arrives, you mm. know, and it's like shot for shot of the cab pulling up and the, the guy getting out. Um, so I guess it's supposed to be a tip of the hat, but one of the things I found in that and in most recent films in what is now, I guess, a subgenre of horror, which you'll call the exorc- exorcism genre. Um, I find it's, it's all the same thing, you know, like there is none of this sense of jeopardy that we have with Reagan and it's all just uh contortionist doing backbends. Yeah, that's true. That I, I would agree with that. Like in the movie, the exorcism of Emily Rose, which is actually, it is based on a, on a true story. The actress actually that was in that movie was a lot of people thought, man, how did she do that? I guess they used CGI because she was in some extremely insane positions in that movie. But she herself, it's like you, like you said, she herself was a, was a contortionist and she actually was able to, to bend and, 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 uh, have her body in all these weird poses. But you're right. A lot of it, a lot of it takes from, um, elements of the exorcist, but never, never matches it. Never matches it. Not even close. Before we, uh, move on, I just want to, um, mention quickly a couple of sort of uh, housekeeping things in terms of the Catholicism. First of all, um, I did try to contact the Archdiocese of Toronto, hoping that they would comment on the film or exorcism in general, but we did not hear back from them, but we, we gave, we gave it a shot. Um, and I also wanted to mention, you were saying Val that, um, you know, like you, at one point you hadn't even heard of exorcism. Um, but there, there are two types of exorcism within the Catholic church. Um, there's uh, prayers of exorcism, which is standard, like every baptism, um, there's an exorcism, basically, where, yes. uh, as well as uh, when adult initiates uh, join the church, there is a form of exorcism. It's not what we see in the film. It's basically, you know, do we renounce Satan, yada, yada, yada. Um, sorry, I don't know if ever, anybody's ever used yada, yada, yada with Satan, but there you go. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, the other one is the one uh, portrayed in the film, which is known as solemn or major exorcism. Um, and uh, is that it for my, 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 my Catholicism update? I think it is. Uh, one thing you mentioned about this whole thing about a person being able to change sort of their body shape and to be able to, to uh, contort their body being a contortionist is there is a scene that I guess might've been brought back in a later version of the original exorcist film, but they had cut it out of, of the, of the airing of it back in 73 was a scene of 
Reagan going down the stairs sort yeah. of backward with her, her hand because it just looked a bit too, uh, or didn't quite work. The spider walk. Right? The crazy, yeah, you call it the spider walk, I, yeah, or I called it the crab walk, but I did see one version of the movie with it. I did. I, I don't know if it was like an extended cut that I saw. That's right. There is a there is a version of, of of it where where you do see it, and you know you you see the demon. What was the demon's? Uh, you mentioned the demon's name. There's quick quick flashes of the demon. It's like a black Susan. and white, right? And there's more. There's even more instances of the demon in 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 that version of the movie. The, the, there's a few more. But That's it's right. like a quick flashes, like Fight Club when Tyler Durden would show up. <laughs> there's like it's like the same thing, right? There, there's, yeah. there's quick flashes of that demon there. Uh, that would be great to have that dubbed in instead, or <laughs> put Tyler Durden in the Exorcist. And you know what? Karis was a boxer too, so maybe he could he could handle it. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you guys think of the music in the uh, Exorcist? Oh, I'll let Val go first. I mean, for I, I I did like how it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't over the top. I liked like it, it. I think it was just the right amount of 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 music. I mean, I there's so many movies that you would see, and you'd wonder would it be as scary with with the music? Would it build the tension as much? Uh, with the music um, like I know for Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, when Leatherface is chasing the girl through the basement there's like you know there's a lot of strings and everything and but this was this was just like it was it was it was I wouldn't say it was minimalist but it was it picked its spots like the music picked its spots I think you heard the bells uh, a couple times you heard them once when she's walking uh, along the street when uh, when uh, when Ellen Burson's walking along the street and of course you heard them when when Blatty um, got out of the cab and there's that that smoke shot there um, but I, I I just loved how how when you heard the instance of the music there it it was relevant it wasn't it wasn't over the top it was just it just fit in so well like it was just it was just relevant for the moment that happened. You know, I, I would think that probably the two best modern, and I'm, by modern, I guess, I mean of the past 50 years, uh, modern horror films are The Exorcist and The Shining. And in the case of The Shining, I've always contended that it's the soundtrack that does most of the heavy lifting to create atmosphere. And that was with um, modern classical music for the most part. Um, and it was really well done. I didn't realize until my last couple of views of it that modern classical was also used in in The Exorcist. There's um, there's a famous piece called something like Electric Insects, which I will give you a little taste of here. And, and that works so well with the film. And one of the things that I guess it was, I don't know, Friedkin or Friedkin and Blatty together deciding that 
there would be this mix of music and and unlike most horror they wouldn't overdo it oh there's a story actually that there was a famous composer who had recorded a score for the film but it was it was very sort of traditional and stereotypical and blatty and not blatty um friedkin upon hearing it took the tapes through and threw them into the parking lot while he was yelling at the, <laughs> at oh, the wow. composer going you know this is not the film we are making this is like yeah. you know frankenstein or something um and then somebody suggested tubular bells to him um, because that had just come out from Virgin records. It was the very first Virgin records uh, album released. Um, and so he gave it a listen and you get that section of tubular bells that we all know um, along with the modern classical music that was used as well. Jack Nietzsche um, who was a, a film composer, but he also was involved in the world of rock. He was heavily involved with Neil Young for years and years. Um, Jack Nietzsche uh, also came up with some of the ideas of throwing in just sound. So the shaking of the bees, a mix of hamsters in a cage, bees in a jar, slaughterhouse animals, and dogs fighting. Uh, just in the background is ambient sound um, at different points. Um, it's just incredible. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really a stroke of genius, the sound design in this film. Well, one question I wanted to ask is in terms of sound design, like, I guess that would just for voice as well. Um, do we know if Linda Blair actually said the dialogue that was supposed to be said yes. and she did actually say it? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was, I was listening to it last night as in, in prepping that, uh, the soundscape that starts episode one. Um, so basically, yeah, she says everything. Really? And then what, and then, yeah. And then what happened was, uh, Mercedes McCambridge, uh, would listen to that and then she would try to replicate it. And so there are instances where you hear both of their voices, um, or I guess it was probably as well to do the lip sync, you know, that she replicated as closely as she could. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. That's much too vulgar display of power, Karis. That's much too vulgar display of power. Harris. The whole thing with Mercedes McCambridge is is crazy too, where she uh, had come out of retirement to do it, and and basically she uh, she like would drink whiskey, yeah, uh, smoke, and have raw eggs to get her throat like really raunchy. Um, and now I've heard different stories. I heard that she demanded to be tied up to a chair while recording it, but I've also heard that it was Friedkin who demanded that she be tied up. Oh, wow. Um, uh, she had won an Oscar for All the King's Men in 1949 and was nominated for her work in Giant as well. Um, and as I was saying, she came out of retirement to voice Pazuzu. Wow. So, I mean, what a thing it would have been to be on set and Linda Blair was 12 years old at the time, right? Yeah. Wow. What a thing, though, to hear like a, a, a 12 year old say all that, say all that. Like, I mean, that's uh, that, that. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, I guess she had to, though, right? For it to be somewhat realistic, like she had to have said those. She had to have said those things for sure. Right. And now, see, there originally was a push for her to win the Oscar. Um, but then there was controversy because, um, Mercedes McCambridge 
was not originally um, credited. It was later on in subsequent cuts, they added a added a credit from Mercedes McCambridge, but there was sort of a thought that, well, maybe this isn't all Linda Blair. Maybe it's this other actress too, but she definitely was doing that. They just enhanced it with Mercedes McCambridge. You, you just have to wonder how much of a selling feature it is for a child actor um, to be in a horror movie. Because I mean, if you're looking at the track record of other child actors in horror movies, uh, they're, they're the the shock waves of things that happen afterwards to them. Like, for instance, the girl, and again, I, I don't know, I keep forgetting her name. I think her last name was O'Rourke, O'Rourke, um, who was Carol Ann oh, in, yes, in the Poltergeist yeah. movies. Right. Um, she ended up passing away, right? At a, yeah. she, it wasn't long after the third Poltergeist movie where she passed away. Um, I know that uh, Drew Barrymore, who was in Firestarter, um, you know, she had her, she had her issues as well in her, in her teens and Linda Blair struggled quite a bit too, um, a- after the movie with, with her, with issues similar to Drew, like with addiction and stuff like that. But I guess it shouldn't just be attributed to, to horror movies that can happen for, you know, for whoever, you know? Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to touch on as well was, um, the sort of cinema verite feel to the film. Um, I remember reading, I believe in Dance Macabre by Stephen King, where he said, you know, one of the things that really makes it work is it feels like a documentary. And again, the music is not overdone the way it would be in a modern horror film where it would be constant. Um, but in terms of the, uh, the cinema verite approach, um, we, we have things like freaking choosing to have, um, like the Georgetown party scene that was actually filled with actual Georgetown socialites. Right. Um, in the psychiatric hospital scenes, use actual Bellevue mental patients as extras, um, like the, the people who are coming up and touching Karis. Um, many of the scenes, many of the scenes consisting of medical procedures were shot on location in hospitals with actual doctors performing these things. Um, and two Roman Catholic priests, as I, we mentioned in episode one, uh, act in the film. Father O'Malley played uh, Father Dyer, and Father Birmingham is Father Tom, the older priest that um, Karis confides in saying that he's lost his, lost his faith. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, well, I, the, the other thing too was like the actual city in itself, right? Like the actual city itself is Georgetown, right? Yeah. It, this isn't a movie that's taking place in New York or Los Angeles. This is this is Georgetown. So that, that that's the other thing, right? Like it's it's just it's it's an un it's an unsuspecting kind of place for a story like that uh, to 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 take place too. And the fact that they're showing, um, you know, they're showing a priest outside of everybody thinks that a priest just does mass and goes to bed and that's not it <laughs> a priest a priest does they have a life right so they show they show you know they show the the priest running a track or hitting a punching bag right so and you know so they, they they're showing like sort of the, the extracurriculars uh, of a priest there as well i mean that that's one of the things that that added to the realism also i mean let's let's not also forget too the opening of uh, of the movie itself where it's taking place in, in an entirely different geography as well. Right. So that certainly um, it lends to the mysticism of the movie a hundred percent, but you're also, you're, you're also aware that this place uh, does exist and has like a huge 
wealth of history there and these artifacts are found and it's certainly a, a, a an interesting little um preface to what's to come at the beginning of it you know for me it it, it added to to the realism of it a hundred percent and we see that long shot when we cut away from Iraq to Georgetown mm. um, and you actually see the stairs, um, which, which until the filming was, were known as the Hitchcock stairs, but have ever since been known as the uh, exorcist steps. Really? Uh, they, yeah. Why were they known as the Hitchcock stairs? I think because uh, I've been trying to look into that. And I think it's just because of uh, what was the movie, David 39 steps. Um yeah, it might have been. Yeah, um, but I I didn't see that it was ever actually a location for it. So for a Hitchcock film, um, but in 2015, the Exorcist steps were designated a DC landmark and tourist attraction, and now there's a a plaque at the base of the steps to mark its importance to DC and film history. And there's actually <laughs> there's actually 97 steps. And my wife who is not even an exorcist fan when she was in Washington, went and took a picture for me. Um, but yeah, people certainly seek it out now. Yeah, I believe it. Wow. I, I don't know. I don't know. For me, it would be, it, it might be a pass for me. I don't know. I wouldn't trust myself to go up or down them. I'm just, yeah, I, it, it, yeah maybe it might be kind of cool to see that though. I'd be curious enough to, yeah, probably I'd be, I'd want to see it for sure. Well, you see Kinderman in the film, and he's there looking at the steps. This is where the body had, you know, where um, uh, Burke had had died. It was at the, the bottom, and he's trying to investigate the, um, the the whole thing. And he's looking up the steps. He's thinking, "I don't want to walk up these steps. There's a lot of steps here." Right. And you just see his sense and his sense that I don't want to walk up these. But then eventually, he does have to walk up those stairs, and he did not appreciate that. Um, when you see a big set of stairs like that, you, you, you take a second to uh, pause. Now, I'm not sure if this is the right time for this or if we'll even have space in this. We might cut this out. But one thing about the language and just how strong and foul it is, that if you want to watch the film properly, you would watch an original version. You wouldn't watch it on TV like AMC or one of these other stations uh, because they they insert other words for the... Um, what's actually being said. So what I do is I wrote a poem some years ago called forget you, Mr. Falcon It's basically a sento. It takes the top 10 edited for TV movie lines. So I thought I would just quickly read that. And then I think uh, Troy might have a response to that, but this is called forget you, Mr. Falcon. Number 10, come on maggot farmer move. Number nine, I gave simple fruitful instructions. Number eight, How'd you get that scar eating pineapple? Number seven, yippee kaye melon farmer. Number six, froggin' ash pole. Number five, pardon my French, but you're an aardvark. Number four, hand me the keys, you fairy godmother. Number three, this is what happens, Larry. This is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. Number two, this town is like a great big chicken just waiting to get plucked. And number one, your mother sews socks that smell. 
Love it. <laughs> I think I got all of those references. I think I got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, David. And it looks like someone is holding up the uh, sign, the 10 minutes left sign in the back of the um, room. So um, at this point, um, we'll finish with our dream casting and our, um, I think it's Schrodinger's cast. So uh, Troy, why don't you talk about those? Okay, David, I'm going to play our, uh, our new dream casting theme. And then I'll give you a little breakdown. Dream casting. Yeah. Dream casting, baby. If it's okay, David, I'll start. And all three of us will give our responses for each role. We are first tackling the idea of casting the leads in the movie from the book, The Exorcist. With the best possible actors and actresses who have ever lived. This is our dream cast. After this, we will do our outside-the-box casting, which we're also calling... Schrodinger's Cast. Beautiful. Uh, Troy will go over the original roles and the actor that played them with the movie version or the novel. So let's start. All right. Originally, Reagan McNeil was played by Linda Blair. Chris McNeil was played by Ellen Burstyn. Father Damien Karras was played by Jason Miller. Part of Father Lancaster Marin was played by Max von Sydow. Lieutenant William Kinderman was Lee J. Cobb. And Burke Dennings was played by Jack McGowan. All righty then. Let me give it a go. Now, this was one of those films that was a little bit tough because some of the roles worked so well because the characters were uh, basically unknowns. Um, Reagan, for example. Um, so, you know, ideally you might want to go with somebody that we don't know. Unfortunately, I can't know what I don't know. So I will give you um, a couple of actors that I considered. Originally, I was thinking a young Florence Pugh or a young Emma Watson. Even I thought of a young Natalie Wood. Um, but uh, I decided to go with Drew Barrymore of, uh, I guess, around, well, older than E.T. and slightly older than uh, she would have been in Firestarter. So Drew Barrymore would be my Reagan McNeil. Uh, in the role of Chris McNeil, I thought maybe Mia Farrow, you know, she'd already done Rosemary's Baby and certainly she could now be doing a mother. Um, I love Susan Sarandon, especially in a film that reminds me of The Exorcist. It's not a horror film. It's um, Lorenzo's Oil. But mm -hmm. Lorenzo's Oil also deals with a mother uh, in a hopeless situation with a child uh, suffering through a debilitating, uh, life-threatening disease. Um, but I went back to Natalie Wood. Uh, so I would have done Natalie Wood um, had she lived, uh, you know, some point in the 80s. So Natalie Wood was my Chris McNeil. Okay, so I'll do my two to start. Um, uh, Reagan McNeil, I have Tatum O'Neill. Uh, from Paper Newton, uh, Paper Moon. She was around age ten, roughly, in 1974 when uh, when she was um, in Paper Moon. That's a great film. 
Uh, I think she also won an Oscar, one of the youngest ever to win an Oscar. Uh, Chris McNeil, I have Patricia Arquette uh, from her role in the movie Boyhood. Very good. Um, okay, so when it comes to, okay, so first and foremost, I, I kind of thought about this in reboot terms, and I know huh? that there are, there are sacred things. And first and foremost, I want to say, if anybody reboots this movie, any director touches this movie, there's only one that should touch it, and that's Jordan Peele. If anybody touches The nice. Exorcist, mm -hmm. Jordan Peele is the one to do it. Okay, so for Reagan McNeil, for me, it would be Anya Taylor-Joy. I first mm. saw Anya Taylor-Joy in a movie called Morgan, uh, and then I saw her in Split. And um, she has just such a, there's something really captivating about her, her face. I don't know how much, I, like, I, I'm not, it, it's just, I, I don't know how much makeup they would have to do for, for her, but she's just, she's got this face for a horror or suspense movie. I know that she's in a series called The Queen's Gambit, but she, she really, I mean, for me, she's very striking, and I think she'd be great as Reagan. There was uh, an, uh, definitely an intensity there. Yeah, for sure. Intensity was what I was looking for. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Troy. Um, and then Chris McNeil, for me, I mean, I, maybe it's just because she's one of my favorite current actors right now, but I would cast Amy Adams as, oh. as, as her mom, for sure. Yeah, I would cast Amy Adams. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, you know, replacing Ellen Burstyn is a really tough thing to do, but I would, I would, I would say Amy Adams for sure. There is, by the way, a I believe a reboot in the works. Um, oh, there really? was there was promo for it um, a year or so ago, and then I have not heard anything in the last little while. I think they they then sort of. Um, uh, Warner Brothers, that is, then backpedaled a bit, and then they were saying, "Well, you know, maybe it's not a reboot; uh, it might be something else." <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Father Damien Karras, uh, I mean, because Jason Miller was actually a writer, was a playwright, um, and he's not in that many films. So often, I just think of him as Damien Karras. <laughs> you know, I, I always forget his name. Um, so uh, my first thought, and I do quite like Mark Ruffalo, thought of Mark Ruffalo. Ah, um, mm. I thought he, he probably, you know, he's got, although Okaris is Greek, but, you know, Ruffalo's got, I think, the Italian background. Um, and then I thought of Marlon Brando, sort of almost as a joke, because uh, he's referred to as being like Marlon Brando. <laughs> um, so I, I scratched that idea. And then... I went with what sort of should have been the obvious in a way. I went with like a 30-year-old um, Robert De Niro. Okay. Who He actually did play a priest in the movie Sleepers. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Sleepers, but he played he played a priest in, in that movie. Kind of a badass priest, too. Oh. He was, uh, yeah, he was like sort of a neighborhood priest that looked out for the kids. Well, that was... A Mm -hmm. I was thinking of like him in Raging Bull too, because I thought uh, I, want, yeah. I want a guy. Well, you know what it was? It was I first of all thought of Stallone because I thought, God damn it, Stallone looks like the character, but I don't think he could pull it off in terms yeah. of an actor. So I thought we need a better actor who can box, or not necessarily can box, but you know. So I thought of Raging Bull and De Niro. So there we go. Awesome. Oh, and and so Lancaster Marin. Um, for a long time, I was stuck on the idea of James Stewart. 
um, in his in his later years. Ooh, okay. Um, yeah, because I, I love him in Vertigo. I love him in Anatomy of a Murder. And he's got that same build, basically, the long, lanky build. Um, but then I went back to the MCU, for God's sake. I'm always dipping into the MCU. And I went with Paul Bettany, uh, Vision. Um, ah. I, 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 he's, he's got the build as well. And, and I find he's got this troubled look. Like there's something behind his eyes all the time. And I thought he could do a Father Marin. And like, like, um, uh, Max Van Cito, uh, who, who was much younger than the priest and he was made up. So I thought that's what we could do as well there. Actually, just make him up for the part. Yeah, that's partly watching the film again that sort of jumped out. Maybe they would have better effects now for makeup because it just looked like there's parts where it's clear that there was something that making try to look older um, in the role. Now, what Who I picked was I actually, for the father, Damien Karras, I picked William Christopher, uh, who was in MASH. Oh! Uh, who who played the uh, father in MASH. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, Paul Mulcahy. Mulcahy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I know that's a bit odd. But, no, it's good. Uh, now, Father Lancaster Mayor, one of my favorite actors is Jürgen Prochnow, who was in uh, Das Boot. He was around 40 in 1981, so he'd be a bit young for that, but he's been doing films since then. He's up the age now because he's did a film recently called Damascus Cover back in 2017 where he was 78, and looking at images of him, he does look a lot like he could be that priest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, keep in mind, this is my reboot that Jordan Peele is directing. Okay. All right. So, so Father Damien Karras, we're gonna put, we're gonna, we're gonna go. We're, I, I, I didn't know that there was another outside of the box category, but so I'm going outside of the box with this one here. Father Damien Karras, uh, he's not Greek, but I, I, I just thought let's put a different spin on this. Jonathan Majors. So for those of you who don't know that who Jonathan Majors is, he's a black actor. He was in a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and he was also in Lovecraft Country. Oh. Um, uh, so I, I thought he would, he would make sort of a, a yeah. cool young priest to play. And then for Father Lancaster Marin, if it's anybody that's going to go up against Satan, this is oh, going to be an elder, me, me. an elder, an elder black mentor priest. If it's anyone that's going to take on Satan, it's going to be Candyman, and that's Tony Todd in the elder role of Father Lancaster Marin. That's I who thought, I'm going with. I thought you were going to go Samuel J. Jackson. <laughs> no, no, I'm not L. Jackson. No, no, no way. Okay. Tony Todd. Tony okay. Todd's playing. Okay. Playing. Yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, get these mother effing demons out of my mother effing <laughs> house. I know. He'd, he'd up the ante, you know, like he'd make Reagan blush. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Troy, we got the final two here. All righty. So, um, Kinderman. By the way, I wanted to mention, interesting, eh? Is it that he's, is he named that because he's a kinder man or is it that he's a child man? Kinder. I don't know. Anyway, that was something that I pondered for a while, needlessly. Um, Kinderman, I thought that uh, George C. Scott was great, actually, in, in Exorcist 3, but I didn't go there. I didn't go there, almost did. I decided I was going to go with an older Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Hoffman's always been one of my, ah. my faves, and I thought as a, uh, 
he make a great Jewish detective. Uh, yeah, period. Full stop. Um, and Burke Gennings, I was thinking about somebody in the film industry, British, uh, and I went with Ian Holm. Oh, nice. Ian Holm. Yeah, Ian Holmes, he was such a good actor. Oh, yeah. uh, rest in mm-hmm. peace, man. Yeah. yeah, miss him for sure. Okay, for me, I've got William Kinderman as actually Peter Falk from nice. Columbo because I almost felt they're almost the same character. Uh, if you look at all the commonalities, like him, yeah, he can talk about, about his wife and his extra question and his his general talk trying to beat around the bush with the actual thing he wants to add and everything about that character was to me Columbo. And I was thinking of Burke Dennings. I wanted someone that was had experience in the industry as a director or as, as someone in the, in film. And I was thinking of <laughs> Qu- Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Cool. Uh, in that cool. role. He would love it too. He would yeah, he'd, he'd that. be all over that. Yeah, now, sure. now David and I uh, were actually discussing the whole Columbo thing. Um, and in the uh, commentary tracks of uh, one of the versions of the exorcist, I watched a, a bunch of them <laughs> recently, so I'm not sure which one, but both Friedkin and uh, Blatty talked about how they were kind of a little bit miffed that they felt that the, that Columbo had been lifted from the Kinderman character. Um, and in fact, there had been talk once the film was released of doing a, a TV series with Kinderman. Um, and so it had been shopped around and they said it was after the fact, after it had been shopped around that all of a sudden there was this Columbo pilot. Um, so they, they think there was a connection there. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know what? I didn't know anything about the fact that the guy that played Kinnerman uh, drew his inspiration from Peter Falk. I didn't know anything about that. So when, in thinking of cast members, my mind went immediately to Peter Falk. I'm like, man, Peter Falk would like fit that, that would that would fit in really great. So yeah, I'm like, I'm like, um, okay, so Peter Falk was one. And then I thought of, I thought I was thinking of, um, you know, who actually would be kind of cool too is, uh, is Sam Watterson from, uh, from, uh, Law and Order. Yeah. Um, I, I thought, I thought about that, but, but I'm sticking with, again, I'm sticking with the Jordan Peele reboot here. So I'm okay. going to, I'm going to pick, uh, and I don't know if you know of this actor, but he was in the movie, he was in the series, The Wire, and his name is Clark Peters. He's a black uh, actor. He he had he has he's an investigator. Uh, the way that he talks, he's also in a series on HBO called Tresemme. Um, he, he's he's really he's he, uh, he's really uh, fantastic. I would put Clark Peters in that role for sure. Uh, okay, so and, and and then Burke Dennings. My apologies, Burke Dennings. Yeah, so for Burke Dennings, um, he's he's no longer with us. I was thinking of. Jesse Plemons, because everyone says that he's reminiscent of of this actor, but um, uh, but I think I'm gonna I would go with my original gut and say Philip Seymour Hoffman as uh, as Burke Dennings. Now, one question that I wanted to ask is because I did not read the book. um, What happens to Burke? Is the scene in the book? No, it's exactly like the film. Okay, it's it's nice. It's 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 uh, like off camera. You know, do you know, for years when it came to Father Damien Karras, for years, I always thought that the guy who played 
Tony's brother in the movie Saturday Night Fever, the guy that played the priest in Saturday Night Fever, was the same guy that played Father <laughs> Damien Karras in The Exorcist. And it's interesting because Saturday Night Fever came out after The Exorcist. Yeah. And in the movie Saturday Night Fever, that priest is thinking of leaving the church. And I always thought, well, no wonder. Oh, my God. <laughs> He was he was attacked by the devil, um, but you know, yeah. For 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 some reason, I always thought that they were the same actor, but they 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 obviously. I grew up and I noticed that they were not. Yeah. All righty, I'm 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 quickly scribbling something here. Oh, am I up first too? Okay, all right. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make it happen, baby. All right, this is our Schrodinger's cast, the outside the box <laughs> casting, the weird fucking list. Uh, we will start with Reagan McNeil uh, is played by Cindy Brady. Cindy Brady. Cindy Brady as Reagan McNeil. And Chris McNeil, of course, is Carol Brady. <laughs> wow. All right, so let's see what I've got. I, I think you're almost going with a Brady Bunch theme there. Let me see what I've got. I've got a Simpsons version. Oh, there you go. So nice. I've got for Reagan McNeil is Lisa. Now, there was actually a Treehouse of Horror episode 20A, XXVIII from 2017 that has The Exorcist being parodied. And Lisa is uh, Reagan McNeil. And Marge would be Chris McNeil. Again, Treehouse of Horror uh, 28. And Valentino, what do you got? Uh, so for you know what's weird is I, I actually put in the outside the box casting. Um, I put I, I had uh, I had Drew Barrymore uh, as like an outside the box casting. I don't know why I thought that was outside the box because I guess everybody one knew her as like this sweet actress and. Uh, you know, uh, irreconcilable differences in ET. Um, so I, I had that. And as far as Chris McNeil is concerned, does everybody remember the actor uh, uh, Divine? Remember Divine? Yeah, Divine. Yeah, I was hairspray. Divine as Chris McNeil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hairspray. Okay, and Troy, what do you got for the uh, fathers? Well, you know, we need to have that sense of gravitas for the roles of the priests. So uh, I decided to go with um, Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz, as Damien Karras. And Very nice. Yeah. As, and this is so obviously, we know that uh, Henry Winkler uh, is a Jewish gentleman, but as a method actor, he played Arthur Fonzarelli, so I'm sure he covered his Italian Catholicism bases in that role. So I'm I know that he's he's going to be familiar with everything Father Damien Karras would have been familiar with. Uh, and Father Lancaster Marin, uh, again, we need a sense of um, solemnity, uh, so I went with Archie Bunker as okay. uh, <laughs> as Father Marin. Wow. He's Pazuzu. Nice. <laughs> okay, so for me, I've got, again, Simpsons stuff, various reverends and fathers that showed up during the Simpsons. So I have Reverend Timothy Tim Lovejoy Jr. Uh, as Father Karras and Father Sean as Lancaster Marin. Nice. Oh shit! That's my third nice. I'm gonna go to the penalty box now. I say <laughs> I say nice too much on the show. Usually, I was doing well until we got here. 
Um, okay, so for me, it would be so for Father Damien Karras, I, I really think that that uh, you have to have somebody with a loud, annoying voice to match the annoyances of the demon. So I would put Gilbert Gottfried <gasps> as as very good as Father Father Damien Karras, and um, maybe not specifically from the Mary Tyler Moore show, but I think Ed Asner. Would be would be my my Lancaster Marin uh, oh, beautiful. Uh, casting. That's really good. And our final set. Okay, here we go. I'm just getting a character name really quickly. Um, all right. Okay. So Kinderman. I have uh, Maxwell Smart. And uh, anybody <laughs> remember his name? Don Don Adams, right? Yeah. Yep. Don Adams. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And as Burke Dennings, I am going to go with um, the man who be- portrayed, not betrayed, the man who portrayed Louis De Palma, Danny DeVito. Ah, okay. All right. So what I've got, I went a bit odd here, is I've got, um, so I've got, um, uh Homer from the Simpsons. Homer, there's actually a clip of <laughs> Homer, Homer from the Iliad. <laughs> no, no, this is Homer from the Simpsons, and he actually has a little clip. If you go on YouTube of him doing a Columbo impression, oh, yeah. so I thought that that would be perfect. And I have Quentin Tarantino, who I thought I had already maybe picked. Did I pick the same person for, um, direct, for director? Uh, just yeah. wait a minute. Oh my God! So I not only have him in the all-time dream. This is a new record. Is the first time we've got someone who's actually listed in both all-time dreamcasting and also the same person's considered outside the box. I didn't even realize I did this. But I also have Quentin Tarantino as the Schrodinger's cast because he was actually in a Simpsons episode called Reservoir Cats. Okay, so for Lieutenant William Kinderman, I'm, uh, I don't know if there are any fans of the show Taxi. But yeah. I would uh, I would definitely go with uh, with Jim Ignatowski. Yeah. Nice. Uh, oh, four <laughs> nices all of a sudden. God Christ- damn it. Christopher Lloyd's Jim Ignatowski. Um, and then for Burke Dennings, the director, uh, I don't know how he he would have felt about it, but I w- I would have um, I would have cast Andy Warhol as as Burke Dennings. I, I would have cast him for sure. Oh, I almost want to change my Reagan to Andy Kaufman now. <laughs> he would have pulled it off too, man. Who knows? He would have. He would have pulled it off. I think you know. Yeah. Slash Andy Kaufman. Oh, Andy so Kaufman just... will, will be the demon version of Cindy. There we go. <laughs> oh my God, that was great. It. Yeah. Okay, so what we have to do because we're almost running over time is a final question about our Exorcist uh, episode. Is there anything uh, Valentino that you may have picked up maybe in the last five or ten years, or just realized about the novel or movie or what have you that you didn't know before that surprised you when you learned about it? Oh, I, I think the only thing that surprises me, and um, um, the only thing that surprises me that, uh, and I don't ever expect it, like for me, it's just kind of, it's like, okay, I'll see this again. Um, but just watching it again is not like just watching it again. It, it, it still 
terrifies me. It's still a movie that that scares me. I mean, um, I watched it uh, a few weeks ago again. I think it was for the tenth time in my life, and um, I just remember I was at the house by myself, and you, I wanted to throw some garbage out in the garage. And the house was kind of quiet and dark, and I just finished watching that. And I remember I went into the garage really quick, pulled up the the trash can, put the garbage in, and went right back downstairs and put a Seinfeld episode on because I needed I needed a cleanse. Um, so the only thing for me, I mean, and I learn it every time, is just that um, it just it, it's like you know how you play like a a Beatles song that never gets tired. It's always good. Um, the exorcist is always scary. It's always scary. So let me, let me ask you, Valentino, is there anything you're working on? Anything that you want to share with us? Uh, what's going on in your life? Anything you want to tell us about and promote? Well, I mean, uh, for, for, for me right now, uh, I'm working on Howl every week and that, that juggling that with a day, with a, with a day job is, is definitely taking up, pretty much all my time um uh you know uh reading the books and interviewing the authors that takes up quite a bit of time i i last last year i did write a sci-fi uh a, a sci-fi novella um sort of a, about ai taking over uh called uh, self-aware and um i guess the the main criticism that i received from people is that it's too short they want more to it, so I guess at some point, I don't know, I'd, I'd go back and write it as a novel. Um, but I'm also working on a second poetry collection um, that I started back in 2019, um, and uh, I'm hoping that I'll finish it by the end of this year or the beginning of next. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Valentino, for being our special guest. It's so so great for you to join us. Oh man, it's been great. I mean, if it's one thing that I love doing, I love talking about movies. I mean, I, I love it. I love it. If the, if there was, if, if people said, "Are you going to come over? We're going to talk about movies." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm I'm coming over. Let's let's do this." And uh, uh, this has been a dream. So thank you so much for having me. Honestly. Yeah, thanks a lot. So that's our Exorcist episode part two. And Troy will uh, let you know a few things about where you can catch us. You can catch us, my friends, on the interwebs. Uh, check out your favorite podcast provider. Remember to like and subscribe. Uh, we've got a website, two, that's a numeric two, two of.ca. We're on Twitter at two old farts sci fi, and that's also numeric two. Facebook, come and check us out on the Facebook at two old farts, talk sci-fi and tell a friend. I'm David Clink. I am Troy Harkin and I need to pee, but not on a rug. <laughs> See you all for our next episode of two old farts. Talk sci-fi. Sci-fi.